Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode, I head out to Great Basin National Park in eastern Nevada to look for the bristlecone pine, one of the oldest species of trees in the world, and also the state tree of Nevada. I learned what makes them so special and what could be threatening some of them. After that, reporter Rocio Hernandez talks about students and teachers returning to the classroom and what challenges school districts around the state face this coming academic year. At the end of the show, we have a piece from our friends over at KUNR Reno Public Radio, where reporter Gustavo Soguero talks to Amber Torres, a representative of Native communities, to the Department of the Interior and other federal agencies. James Woolsey is the superintendent of Great Basin National Park, and he and I went on a hike a few weeks back so that he could show me something really special. They're magical. They're, they're so old. And I think to think about it, how can a tree live for 5,000 years? The bristlecone pine is one of the state trees of Nevada and is one of the oldest living single organisms in the world. That doesn't mean it's immortal, though. The tree, like other organisms around the world, is facing several environmental threats. We'll dive into that in a minute, but first, let's hear more about these spectacular trees' age. I think bristlecones help put life into perspective. You have to work a little bit to get to go see these bristlecones, but if you take the time to do that, you feel appreciative of all they've gone through and you realize, ah, yeah, life might be better than I think it is. (laughs) That was Gretchen Baker. She's an ecologist and a cave specialist at Great Basin National Park. She talked to reporter Daniel Rothberg and me for this story. Well, bristlecone pine is one of the longest living organisms on earth. When you get up to the trees and you look at the bristlecone pines, you just feel a little different. They started growing long before you were born, long before your parents were born, your grandparents, back many, many generations. And it's just a different time scale. If you've never seen a bristlecone pine, don't think of your typical tree. Some of these trees really look like they're thousands of years old, with gnarled branches and very wide trunks. James was telling me all about them on our hike. And in areas where it seems like they need to struggle a little bit more, they get these disjointed shapes, and they're not even round at all. It's almost like a tree you'd see in a Dr. Seuss novel, squarish and have shoots going up in all directions. And they have bark on a small little portion of the tree. They'll have three or four limbs and three of the limbs will be dead. And one limb will have little <laughs> tufts of green on it. And you'll think, well, that thing has to be dead, but, but there's just one living thing on it. So we're coming up on this one, which really is a funky one. I mean, it, it's so hard. It's like a stone. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this one has more green than most of them. And that's probably why it grew up a little bit. So bristlecone pines can live so long because they just hang on to life for a really long time. And they do that by letting parts of the tree die. So if their roots get exposed, that's a death knell for that part of the tree that is supported by those roots. But if there are roots that are still underground, that part of the tree can still continue growing. So there might just be a strip of bark that goes up from those roots and helps to get the water and nutrients up to that part of the tree. And it's called strip barking. And you can see some trees with some amazing twisting and turning and that strip of bark just follows along till it gets out to those bristlecone pine needles. And those themselves can be up to 40 years old. 
The bristlecone has a pretty extensive range, actually. They grow through most of the Great Basin and in areas like Owens Valley in eastern California, as well as in central and eastern Nevada, Utah, and Colorado, as well as small portions of northern Arizona and New Mexico. They don't compete well with other trees and commonly succumb to root rot in gardens. They thrive in harsh environments where most other plants can't grow, in high altitudes with rocky soils, in areas with little rainfall. They're kind of on top of all these high elevation areas all over the place. So I think, you know, some people I think are under the impression that they're, they're very limited in scope or they're rare, but they're actually not that rare. The really oldest trees might be a little rarer. It's kind of where they can grow and where they can grow a long time. And it seems like something that's particularly important, you know, especially if someone's going to live two or 4,000 years, is they're not in a place that's going to burn all the time. And that is now one of the threats facing the tree. With climate change comes more fires, which could burn some of the trees that are thousands of years old. It has burn scars on it, you can see. Yeah, yeah. They are somewhat fire resistant, huh? Yes, and they, you know, you know, every once in a while, you got to assume that a fire will come through here. We know this area is burned historically because we're able to go into the lakes and look at the layers of mud. And every once in a while, there'll be a charcoal layer. You know, like 1300 or something like that. There was a huge, probably stand replacing fire up mm -hmm. here. The evidence seems to indicate that certainly since humans have been here over the last 15,000 years, this place was well burned. And since Euro-American colonization, this area has burned hardly at all. Mm -hmm. And so the ecology has really drastically changed in the last 150 years. And you'd think, oh, less fires, that's good. But instead of having small fires that just leave a scar, now there is more fuel because the area hasn't burned in so long. That could lead to a much larger fire that could leave more than just a scar on some of these thousand-year-old trees. Here's Gretchen again. Wildfire, generally those older bristlecone pines have a lot of space among the trees. And so the fire usually doesn't carry that well. But what we're finding is at lower elevations, mid-mountain, the trees are denser and the, when the wildfires do occur there, they can be hotter and burn faster and we can get more sparks up into the bristlecone pines than possibly in, in past times. That The bristlecones might be a little more susceptible to fire now. But fire isn't the only threat these pines face. There's also white pine blister rust, a fungus that can kill the tree. White pine blister rust? a non-native fungus, but we can are monitoring for it because in Colorado, where it's come in, it has really hurt a lot of the bristlecone pines. There are efforts to protect from the fungus, though, where Great Basin, the U.S. Forest Service, and Rocky Mountain Research Station are collaborating. And another threat to the tree, and possibly the scariest, are beetles. We're, we're learning more and more about this, but yes, there are Little bugs that seem to be natural, almost predators of trees. And so we have beetles. But it does seem like the bristlecone in particular seems more able to withstand those things and fend them off. And then we've just discovered a couple of populations of bristlecones that are being invaded by beetles. And one is on the range in Death Valley that Telescope Peak is on. And then the second range is in western Utah. And in both those populations, we found bristlecones invaded by these beetles. It's absolutely scary because we, we really don't understand it yet. Is, that, is there something unique about those two populations that has allowed that? Or 
is this maybe our first warning of something bigger that's going to happen? We put verbenone, which is a pheromone to ward off mountain pine beetle. The verbenone works to basically tell other mountain pine beetles that this tree is already full of mountain pine beetles. They should go find some other tree. It seems to work quite well. So that's in progress. Over in Death Valley, they, they are definitely having some problems with the bristlecone pine. The pine beetles are able to attack those trees because they're so stressed with the, the drought. On top of all of this, the environment that these trees grow best in poses a challenge in and of itself. The fact that some of these trees make it thousands of years is a minor miracle. Bristlecone pines are the masters of living in harsh conditions. They have to deal with really cold temperatures all winter long. They deal with a nearly nonstop wind because the, the, the ones that grow the longest are often on ridges. And because of that, they grow in these unique forms where a lot of them are hunched over or growing in a particular direction because the wind has shaped them. If they're lucky enough to make it past the, the seedling stage, when they can be eaten by various things, they, they have to grow very slowly, deal with very little water, very few nutrients. They can deal with a lot of intense sun because they're up at high elevations. They deal with just all sorts of environmental difficulties, and yet they just keep doing it year after year and century after century and millennia after millennia. So there are fires, fungus, and beetles threatening these trees. But as we've learned, these are hardy plants that can really survive a challenging environment. So they're threatened, but they aren't endangered. So why are we talking about them then? On top of being so unique and old, they can teach us a lot. One fascinating thing is that these trees are actually migrating. Just like an animal might migrate to find a sustainable climate to live and breed and thrive in, so too do trees, just on a longer timescale. So we are seeing the bristlecone pine growing up higher on the mountain now. We have little seedlings that are starting to creep up the mountains. They're trying to find more hospitable climate to grow. Mm -hmm. We have stumps of them growing up on Mount Washington higher than where they are growing now. And that is from when the climate used to be even warmer than it is now. And the trees had to move up the mountain. They grew, then it got a little colder and they died. And so we get really cool climate records from those stumps that are up a little higher. So bristlecone pine is very adaptable to different climates. However, because it does take so long to get going and to start producing pine seeds, sometimes it can be 40 or 50 years before it produces viable pine seeds. If climate change happens too fast, that could make it a little harder for it to survive long-term. Bristlecone pines live so long that we can actually measure geology with the trees. These trees grow so long that you can see the erosional rates of the rocks under them. And on top of what we can learn, these behemoths of trees, these ancient sentinels of the Sierra Nevadas, Rockies, and Great Basin Mountains, are inspiring. Their age is one thing, but as James put it, it's not the only thing that makes them spectacular. So these are like some of the oldest organisms on earth, huh? And we love things that are the biggest or the oldest. And you know, I, I do think sometimes we, we go a little bit overboard on those things. 
even beyond how old they are, just how they look. They're like a piece of art. They're beautiful. So a hundred years ago, I don't think a human would have looked at these trees and said, these are special and we, we're going we're gonna to make a big deal about them. <laughs> but I think eventually through time, people discovered how old they are. And then they started really looking at them and thinking about them. This is amazing. You know, we live on this amazing planet that has such incredible natural resources. And I think, you know, just even the last couple hundred years, think about what we've learned about our place in the universe. And, you know, and now we know as animals, you know, they've been here millions of years and we're protecting an important slice of that. Human beings, I think for a long time, we've lived on this earth and not really thought through what we're doing. And we just go do whatever seems right. And oftentimes cause animals to go extinct and things of that sort. And, you know, as a National Park Service, I think we're doing a really important mission to preserve this natural heritage that belongs to all of us. This piece was reported and produced by myself, Joey Lovato, and Daniel Rothberg. It was edited by me with additional help from Jackie Valley. I was also able to go on that hike with James thanks to PBS Reno's show, Wild Nevada. They will have an episode all about Great Basin National Park and Baker, Nevada that is supposed to air sometime in spring 2023, so make sure to keep your eye out for that. Well, I love the bristlecone pine, as you can tell. Um, and, you know, I learned about it in third grade when I was studying uh, state symbols, something that stuck with me uh, all these years later. Yeah, and, you know, a bunch of students are going to be learning about bristlecone pine when they return to school this year after the summer break. Our reporter, Rocio Hernandez, toured several schools as Clark County returned to school this week. And she's here to tell us more about that and what challenges K-12 education is facing in the upcoming academic year. All right. Well, I am here with our education reporter, Rocio Hernandez. And Rocio, you were out touring schools for the first day of school in Clark County today. And there's a lot coming up in this school year. You know, obviously, there's always kind of a lot to talk about when, when it comes to K-12 education. But to start off, I just wanted to know, what are some of the biggest challenges facing Nevada school districts this year? How much of a teacher shortage are CCSD and the Washoe County School District seeing? And, and, and how is that going to impact the quality of education that some of the students are going to be getting? Yeah, like you mentioned, that's probably one of the biggest problems and the one that comes most to mind for school officials, teachers, parents, and students when you think about the first day of school and how that's going to be for you. You don't quite know if you're going to be lucky to get a teacher or you'll have to have subs come in and fill in that gap, which is what a lot of districts are looking for right now substitute teachers to temporarily fill those teacher positions. So as of late, the numbers that we have from Clark County School Districts looks like they've got a little more than 1,300 teacher vacancies. And the Washoe County School District, which is smaller than Clark County, has 251 vacancies among certified staff. So as we reported two weeks ago, teacher vacancies aren't really a new problem in these districts or even in the state. And the teacher shortage is a pretty widespread national problem. 
But in Clark County, it's particularly worrisome because 20 of the schools with the highest teacher vacancies serve mostly Black and Latino students, which school officials are concerned about since they fear that it might further inequities that these students are already facing. Districts do have temporary solutions to fill the vacancies. They can ask existing teachers and staff to fill in. They even bring in principals or other administrators with teacher licenses to stop and sit in for the class. And they can also rely on substitute teachers when possible. But those kinds of solutions aren't necessarily the best for student learning because students need a teacher that they can rely on and not just for academics, you know, someone to start bonding with and building trust with. And when you don't have a teacher that's placed into your classroom right away, some school officials have told me that they feel that that takes away a little bit of the social and emotional learning that should be taking place in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. With with that shortage, I'm sure comes some changes. And we've been seeing a lot of changes over the past couple of years as, as the pandemic has changed the way that students are going to school and, and how education is being delivered. So what are some of the big changes that students, teachers, and parents are going to be seeing this year? I think the biggest thing that I've noticed for this first day is just the lack of mass and like this sense of like returning to normalcy in schools. I felt like I saw very few masks out there and I was going over districts and what they're going to be doing with COVID this year. It seems that it's going to be more relaxed. They still will be asking students who come into close contact with someone with COVID or if they test positive for COVID themselves to quarantine. So fingers crossed that everything stays on this trajectory and we have a more normal school year than we've had since 2020. And one of the big things, too, that was really plaguing the school districts in Nevada last year was transportation issues. There was a huge shortage of bus drivers. Is that still the case? Yeah, that may continue to be a problem for this school year. This morning, Clark County Superintendent Jesus Jara told us that his, his district is short about 80 to 82 bus drivers. The Washoe County School District also appears to be struggling to fill their vacancies. On Friday, they sent a message to families letting them know that they will need to implement an area rotation plan again for this school year. And to remind everyone, that's where the district divides itself into the four zones and transportation will be suspended for one week on a rotating basis for each of the zones. So the district is hopeful that the area rotation plan will only need to be implemented until fall break. Both districts have increased pay for their bus drivers, and the Washoe district also is offering benefits to its bus drivers. So the districts are pretty hopeful that if there is a bus driver shortage at the moment, that they'll be able to hire more and get that resolved more quickly. Yeah, yeah. And, and another big issue that was going on last year, especially in Clark County, was was safety. Is this something that's still a concern? And how are they going to address the issues of violence in schools? Yeah, that was another thing that came up today on the first day of school for a superintendent and for many of the parents. And it, in fact, like you mentioned, Clark County did see an increase of violence in its schools with students fighting. So some of the things that they've implemented this school year is they've increased cameras around campus. They've added cameras to the interior and exterior of buses. They've also are implementing single entry points for schools. So that means there'll only be one entrance that students and parents can go through in an effort to control traffic. And a lot of these big safety improvements are especially top of mind for school officials Months after the shooting that we saw at Texas in elementary school, they do want to be prepared. Superintendent Jara mentioned to us that 
the district's police officers have been training with law enforcement on how to respond to a situation if that were to occur. They've also implemented panic buttons for teachers for not only those kinds of big emergencies, but for any kind of emergencies that arise in their campuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to end on a little bit of a lighter note, you did get to do some some school tours today. And, and so I, I was just curious, what were some of the things that you got to see while, t- while touring schools on the first day of uh, Clark County? I mean, I'm always impressed by everyone's new backpacks and the latest shoes. I was impressed mostly by a little girl who was wearing some vans, some light blue vans with some unic- with the unicorn horn and it ha- came with wings. Very jealous. I would totally be that girl on the first day of school. <laughs> but one of the coolest things I saw was an elementary school in North Las Vegas. They have this thing called a Zen Den, which they called it. It's supposed to be like a calming and relaxing space for students. And it's also got a bunch of fun mini trampolines and other toys for students that come into school with too much energy so that they can let go of some of that energy and then be ready to start the learning process again. And it's also a space for students to come in if they're feeling frustrated, if they need more support, they can come into that room and feel like they have a caring adult there. So I think it's a really great idea, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic and students struggled a lot with their mental health. So that's one of the ideas that people are thinking might help if you create these sort of spaces where students can have an outlet to let those feelings go and redirect them into more positive behaviors. I think we could use a a Zen Den here at the Nevada Independent, as well as any newsroom. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for for getting out there and checking out all the schools. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more of your reporting in the future as the school year gets underway. Thank you so much, Rocio. All right, thanks. Tribes will now have a voice at the table when it comes to decisions made by the Department of Interior and other federal agencies. The Secretary's Tribal Advisory Committee has 12 members from across Indian Country. One is Chairman Amber Torres of the Walker River Paiute Reservation in Northern Nevada. She spoke with reporter Gustavo Seguero with KUNR Reno Public Radio, one of our media partners, about her new role. Amber Torres has been the chairman of the Walker River Paiute Tribe since 2016. When we recently sat down together, she said her appointment to the Department of Interior Secretary's Tribal Advisory Committee is historic. Indian Country has not been at the table with the previous administration. Indian Country was not even a a thought at that point. So the, the fact that we can be at the table, have consultation, have meaningful dialogue, and be able to really look at good, positive changes for Indian country is very significant. Once Secretary Deb Hallen got in there, I think she understands the importance of meaningful consultation with Indian country and the federal government. Due to all the historical traumas that Indian country has faced over the years, she knew the importance of making sure that she had a tribal advisory committee at the table to make that meaningful change for the future and our next seven generations. Mm What kind of leverage does the committee have in effecting change for the over 540 tribes across the nation? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so having that feedback, that dialogue, and then also having the power as a tribal leader to speak with our congressional leaders, with our senators, and really advocating for the changes that we need. We have the power to put those changes in resolution form, not only at that committee level, but at our own respective nations. 
What kind of changes are important for you? We're really focused on conveyances, making sure that people get the titles to their homes. You know, that's been a bottleneck and a challenge for us. Having probate is very, very important. Can you explain that issue a little more and how the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs, also called the BIA, plays a role? For people that don't know, the BIA is an office within the Department of Interior that manages a portion of the federal government's relationship with the many tribes within the U.S. Probate is where if an individual expires, you know, their their home could be left in limbo because it hasn't been given to the next of kin. And so they really go in through the BIA and they decipher where these valuables or these properties will go. Probate needs to happen. Land leases. The BIA actually signs off on all of our land leases that are on the reservation. And a holdup could mean either a deal breaker for economic development and what kind of revenue comes into the tribe. We also have been severely underfunded for a number of years through BIA in some of these very, very important programs that we run, such as the land department, the enrollment, our social services. A lot of these programs are underneath the Department of Interior. And, you know, a lot of our tribal nations run these very, very pertinent programs within our reservation. And so we need to make sure that, again, the, fol- the policies and procedures fit with our own respective nation, but at the same time also have the proper funding to administer it, you know, where our people are actually receiving a service. Let's shift the conversation to Northern Nevada's mining or extractive industries. Do you think this will be a topic for the committee? First and foremost, We've seen over the years and with the previous administration is that we as tribal nations were not brought to the table to have any kind of perspective on whether it be mining or these different ventures that the federal government is signing off on saying, yes, please go on the land, do what you need to do because it's it's best for us or you, but not Indian country. And I think that's what this committee will bring is making sure that we've got policies and procedures that enact that we have to be at that table to give that consent. When you talk about mining and you bring in man camps, you know, that's where MMIP comes into play. So you're saying these man camps present a public safety issue, especially when it comes to missing and murdered indigenous women. And especially when we don't know that these projects are coming onto our homelands until they've started the exploration process or what have you. Not saying that all of them are bad, But make sure that we're at that table giving our consent. Earlier, you mentioned the concept of seven generations. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Everything that we do in today's day is preparing the next seven generations to come and take over. And so we really need to be thoughtful of perspective, you know, um, policy changes and how we set them up for a successful future. That was Amber Torres, chairman of the Walker River Paiute Tribe. Her appointment to the Department of Interior Secretary's Tribal Advisory Committee will last two years. I'm Gustavo Sagredo, KUNR News. This interview was produced with assistance from the Public Media Journalist Association Editor Corps, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank James Woolsey, Gretchen Baker, Daniel Rothberg, Rocio Hernandez, Amber Torres, and Gustavo Segredo for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with funny anecdotes about slipping on a banana peel or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at thenvindy.com. Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.